And thank y'all so much for coming back. And I'm glad we didn't run off everybody. So uh, <laughs> we've got we've got some good and exciting things to cover today. Um, let's begin with prayer, and then I'll jump right in. Lord, uh, just thank you for this church family, God, that we're a group of people that are ever wanting to uh, grow closer to you and to be more faithful to all that the Bible teaches us and embrace all that you have in store for us. And I pray that you use the rest of our time together to um, to accomplish that, to, to provoke longing in our hearts and clarity in our minds. And um, Lord, that we would be a people who, uh, who exemplify and, and point to constantly just your radiance and your beauty, your glory and majesty. And um, so Lord, just may our hearts be, be uh, moved to affection and tenderness towards you and these things. And uh, just speak to us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, let me see. Okay, let me just cover a few quick, quick things here. Um, so we have this book table over here. And uh, these books, these are my personal books. So uh, please do not take them or even offer to buy them. Because these are my personal friends and my journals. This is how I journal is through my engagement with books. Um, <laughs> but my purpose of putting these out here is um, to give you a chance to take a look at them and check them out. Some of them are in the back of your resource packet in the recommended reading list. Um, so uh, these, these are all uh, uh, very, very good books, and I'll, I'll be referencing some of them, but feel free to take a look at these, and then uh, if you want to purchase it for further reading, reading you can do that. Now, in terms of the resource packet, um, I, I want to just briefly go through what's in there. So the first eight pages there, the gift of prophecy, we're going to cover about half of that today. Probably won't get to the second half. Um, so we'll be using that as an outline this morning. The next section is uh, that this thing, immersion of the spirit, a third wave perspective on inauguration and subsequence. So this is kind of an academic paper. Um, part of what I, uh, one of my research paper assignments when I was in Sovereign Grace Pastors College. So this is when I wrote this. This paper is dealing with what we talked about last night in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And when does the baptism in the Holy Spirit take place? And uh, what about subsequent infillings or experiences of the Holy Spirit over time? And uh, so this, this goes into that in, in much greater detail than we were able to cover last night and um, interacts with some of the Greek and stuff like that. So it might be a, a touch, a bit academic um, if you don't have some, some knowledge of Greek. But I, I think it's still easy to follow, wouldn't you say, even without. Um, so it doesn't depend on that. But gives it some context. Good, good. Good. Um, so that, that's what that one is. So that's kind of like, for, for further enjoyment, uh, you may read this if that, if some of you might find that to be helpful and some of you might skip over that and I won't be offended in the least bit. Um, we won't go into depth on tongues. Um, we'll touch on it. But the next section in the resource packet is kind of an extended quick sheet about um, tongues in particular as a personal prayer language. So we'll cover it today in terms of um, public 
speaking of tongues and, and how the Bible addresses that. Um, but if you want to hear a, a, a perspective on tongues as a personal prayer language, that would be that section. Uh, there's a short article that I wrote a while back on uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's often a question that comes up when we talk about the Holy Spirit. So you can read that if you'd like. And then on the recommended reading, what I want to point out on, on this part is that this is an annotated bibliography. So in other words, just below um, the reference, I've got a sentence or two summarizing the book, what I think is helpful. And then in parentheses after my summary is uh, just how readable is it? is it? Is it easily accessible? Is it devotional? Is it technical? Is it super academic? Where does it fall in, in terms of that? Um, so everybody's going to be at a different place in terms of what they can engage with and process. So that's just one way to um, lay some of those out. Um, these are all all pretty important works and uh, just things that I've I've really benefited from. So uh, in the recommended reading, last page, just you know, I would encourage you to read through the bullets because that's where it can help you decide if you want to take a deeper dive on some of this, these would be some books that you can choose from that I would, I would actually uh, recommend. Okay. Um, so that's that. So this morning we want to jump into um, the gift of prophecy. And, and as we start this discussion, I'm actually going to erase this at this point. <laughs> um, as we start this discussion and we're in the middle of a continuationism weekender, I do want to admit that we are cessationists in one regard. <laughs> and the best cessationists will admit that they are continuationists in many regards. Um, so we are cessationists in one regard, and that is with regard to inscripturation, the writing of Scripture. We don't believe that Scripture is still being written today. Um, no, very few people do believe that. Uh, the ones that do are called cults. <laughs> um, so we, we do believe that the writing of scripture has ceased, but here's an important distinction is that, um, the ability to write scripture is never cast as a spiritual gift either. So when we say, uh, the writing of scripture has ceased, we're not saying that certain spiritual gifts available to the new Testament church have ceased. It's not like the writing of scripture was just one of the gifts, you know, maybe you have the gift of helps, maybe you write scripture. That's not really how uh, inscripturation is dealt with in the New Testament from, from what I can see. It's not a spiritual gift operating in the New Testament church. It is a divinely appointed office, yes. Um, individuals were commissioned by God for the special task of writing down God's authoritative words. And there was no hint um, that, was, that that gift was available to anyone in the early church, and certainly not available to, to uh, today. Now, it's a, it's a gift not in the same sense of the spiritual gifts, but a gift in the sense of it's a divine empowerment for a particular task. I mean, that's about the only common denominator between writing scripture and the spiritual gifts that were operating in the New Testament church. So to illustrate this, um, let me draw this out on the board. Okay, so in that category of inscripturation, we'll just write the word Bible, all right? So this is the um, divinely inspired and authoritative 
word of God right here. And this line is very important. If you've been in our new members class, you might have seen this, but we're going to expand on it a little bit today. So this is, this is Bible. Um, everything up here is God's authoritative word. It is everything that God has revealed to us in scripture. There's nothing that matches it. We could say this is God's um, special revelation. God certainly reveals himself in nature, in general revelation, but this is God's special revelation. God has disclosed himself in the, the pages of scripture. Now, the next category that we could say uh, extends down below that, and it's, it's on a different shelf. It's on a different tier. And in this category, um, we could just simply summarize that as guidance. So do you believe that God guides us? If you pray for direction, do you think God would answer that? We would call that guidance. Um, subjective guidance is not on par with Scripture, but how do we know if subjective guidance is from the Lord or if it's not? Well, extending down from the Bible's uh, divinely inspired special revelation, we could say extending down from that are these certain guardrails. In other words, the way that we know that God is guiding us is when that guidance doesn't go outside of what Scripture has revealed or suggest or call you to something that Scripture has forbidden. Um, that would be out, outside of that. Um, but in the category of guidance... Um, there are a lot of things that could go in that category. Um, so what are some things that, that you think would, would be in that? What are some things that, going back to just presence that we talked about last night, and the, the way God manifests himself to his people, um, you know, those would be things in, in here. But let's think more specifically about that. What are some ways, what are some categories that God guides his people? And just start calling them out. What might be something you need guidance for? Or what What's an experience of guidance? Yeah, good. Okay. Counsel. Yep. Good. What else? What about um, conviction of sin? I mean, that's a very subjective experience. You know, we read that X is sinful in the Bible, and that's one thing. I mean, we read it, we see it, we know it, but what happens when the heart is broken over that? There's a, a sense of conviction that I have sinned against God. It's very subjective, right? It's very, you feel that sense of con conviction. It flows from objective reality that God is real and sin is real, but it, it doesn't stop there. It, it, it moves into this, godly sorrow that leads to repentance, right? So um, conviction is another way uh, that the Spirit guides his people. Yeah, what else can we put in there? Maybe like dreams. Okay, yeah, maybe. Now, dreams, um, yeah, yep. 
Now that brings up the next thing I want to point out. Um, so really with, with all of these, and we could add other things like um, evangelism is, so say in evangelism, you're all of a sudden, you know, God just puts this lost person on your heart and you can't stop thinking about him and you're praying for him. And next time you see him, God just opens the door for you to share the gospel and you walk through it and you share the gospel with that person. You know, you're, you're being guided by the Holy Spirit. So guidance happens in evangelism. Um, guidance happens when uh, even in the body of Christ, God puts somebody on your heart and you're thinking about them and they're going through this thing that you know about and you're just praying for them and you're just burdened to pray for somebody. That's the spirit's guidance. Right. And so, um, those are all, those are all good things. Now there are these other things that exist on the outside, um, where, where counsel might be, we know counsel can be done wrongly and poorly. It can go against scripture. So if, if counsel, if I could move this, if it, it could be out here, and if it's out here, then it's not from the Lord, because it doesn't. It doesn't. It's not guarded by the truth of Scripture. It's not. It's not guarded by. The, it's not flowing from the truth of Scripture. So the two ends of that spectrum would be counsel, dreams. Um, they could be contrary to Scripture, but to say, okay, no, it needs to be in agreement with Scripture. There's nothing that by saying it needs to be in agreement with Scripture means it's equal to Scripture. So we would never counsel somebody in their marriage or their, their struggles and, and, and give them counsel in such a way that sounds like our, wor our words are uh, equal to God's divinely authoritative, infallible words in the Bible. We still maintain a distinction. Only God's word is divinely authoritative and infallible. Our words of counsel to one another, counsel, care, comfort, those words are not equal to Scripture, but they flow from Scripture even while they're below on the, on the other shelf, below the tier of special revelation. They flow from it. They're not equal to it, but they should not be outside of it. Does that make sense? So those are just super important categories. Um, and so... Um, this is where we would put the category of most New Testament prophecy is in this category of, of uh, guidance. And we're going to look and see at why, why that seems to be the, the case from Scripture. Um, now, if you look at your handout in, the, in the, your resource packet, we'll start there. I'm going to draw some distinctions here. Um, okay. Okay. So I'll do this one up here. Timeline of history. We did this yesterday. Um, this kind of marking a big, big transition. Um, in the Old Testament, when we when we see um, Old Testament prophecy is a category. So at the top of your page, can somebody read the definition of Old Testament prophecy? Just that bold heading there. Right. Okay. So in in the Old Testament, prophets for the most part um, spoke God's actual 
an authoritative word. So here's some examples of that. They were messengers from God. Um, Haggai 1.13, Obadiah 1. We're not going to have time to go through all of these, but you can glance at them and see. As messengers, they didn't speak on their own authority, but on that of the one who sent them. They spoke God's very words. Uh, to disbelieve or disobey a prophet's words is to disbelieve or disobey God himself. Um, so it was clear that in the Old Testament, prophets uh, spoke God's actual and authoritative words. Um, and, it, and footnote there, this is very much heavily influenced by um, Wayne Grudem, who's articulated these things so well. Uh, page two, letter E, prophets' words could not be challenged, questioned, or sifted. They were either true or they were false. And if they were false, uh, the result was death because they were God's act, speaking God's actual and authoritative words. They spoke God's very words and could write, could write scripture. Now, as we come to the New Testament, the right side of that line, um, we have to ask whether there's a New Testament equivalent to this role. Is there anyone in the New Testament who could speak God's very words, whose, whose words were beyond challenge or question and who could write scripture? We'd say, yes, the equivalent there is the apostles, the New Testament apostleship. So Old Testament prophecy, as we transition into the New Testament, gives way to New Testament apostleship as the better equivalent to Old Testament prophecy. So this is a big, big uh, difference between continuationists and cessationists where cessationists would tend to draw a straight line from Old Testament prophet to New Testament prophet, we would see a distinction that, no, as we come to the New Testament, the, the writing and giving of Scripture primarily was through the apostles. We don't see New Testament prophets writing Scripture. Um, so we would, we would see a distinction there. Now, where does that distinction come from? And if there's such a major transition in the way prophecy works as we move from Old Testament to New Testament, would the Bible signal that? We'll turn to Acts chapter 2, where we were last night, because yes, the Bible signals that loud and clear. Um, although, you know, uh, those who would disagree with us would, would not see there being any difference whatsoever between Old Testament prophets and New Testament prophets. Um, but in Acts 2, when Peter stands up and says, these people are not drunk as you suppose, but what's happening right now at Pentecost is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, Acts 2.16. And now verse 17, he quotes, Joel, in the last days it shall be. Okay, so just pause right there. So Peter is saying that due to the Pentecost event happening here, we have begun this uh, last days period of history. In the last days, here's what's going to happen. And Peter is saying, this is that. This is that thing that Joel talked about in the last days. It's, it started right now. That's what he's saying Pentecost was, right? So this is what was uttered in the last days. It shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So notice the widespread democratization of the spirit's work to all people, all flesh, sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. That is a, even for Joel and the people of Joel's day, that is way different than any concept of prophet 
that was operating in the Old Testament. You know, the, the prophet was that special man of God. The prophet was the guy who's just walking through the forest and the teenagers make fun of him and a bear comes out and kills him because you don't, you don't mock the authority that God's placed in your life in the office of that prophet. Like that's, it's way different. And Joel is saying, yeah, but the day's coming when God's going to pour out his spirit in such a way that all God's people have the spirit. All of God's people are eligible, so to speak, for the gift of prophecy. Dream, dream dreams, see visions. All people, all people, it's not, it's not um, comprehensive and exhaustive, every single person, but it's that every person without distinction. It's that the, the office of, I mean, the, the uh, gift of the spirit and the gift of prophecy is not going to be going only to certain individuals, but that it will be available to all of God's people. And the language is just so comprehensive. Your sons and your daughters. I mean, in Joel's day, it would not even be conceivable that a, a daughter, a woman, would be a prophet. And yet Joel is saying the day's coming when that's going to happen. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Um, male servants, female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit. They shall prophesy. And Peter's saying the Pentecost event marks the transition to that day. That period that Joel talked about has now begun in the Pentecost event, which is a huge way to signal that as we come in under the new covenant, things are drastically changing. Um, it, it's Again, the good word is just the democratization of the spirit, that the, the spirit is poured out indiscriminately on all of God's people. And the, the nature of the Spirit's work in God's people is not like what we saw last night in the Old Testament where the Spirit would come upon someone and rush upon someone and equip and empower them for a particular task, but not permanently indwell them. Here we're seeing, no, the Spirit's going to come and permanently indwell God's people. The, the very nature of God's people's interactions with the Spirit will change. And it's why the New Testament can treat all of God's people, you, you are all priests before God. You are all God's temple. You don't go to a temple. You know, the whole, the whole picture of what God has done in Jesus in the new covenant changes. And we have clear signals that the, the way prophecy works as we transition to the New Testament is going to be way different. Now, what, what stays the same? Scripture still being written right? Because we still are getting the New Testament being written by the point of Acts chapter 2. The New Testament still being written, but we see that those writing the New Testament uh, would be more apostles. We don't see prophets writing the New Testament. So what happened to Old Testament prophecy? Well, I would say it gave way to New Testament apostleship, but New Testament prophecy didn't go away. It became subordinate to uh, New Testament apostleship. And so prophecy in the New Testament still functions, but in a radically different way. That's what Joel signaled. That's what Peter, defending what happened and explaining what happened at Pentecost, points to Joel to say, this is that that Joel talked about. Um, and so prophecy would take on an entirely new character to it. Um, so moving on in the handout, we're at the top right quadrant there. New Testament apostleship is also speaking God's actual and authoritative words. Apostles were...
God. They were associated with Old Testament prophets. They received the gospel message and were commissioned to write it down. To lie to an apostle was to lie to God. Remember Acts 5. Um, the apostles' words could not be challenged or questioned. Um, the apostles' words were God's very words. And the apostles' words carried greater authority than any New Testament prophet's words. And we'll see that um, in 1 Corinthians 14. It's really interesting. If you want to look at, look at that now, um, that'll be a good transition to New Testament prophecy. So turn to 1 Corinthians 14. Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 is explaining and, and regulating and correcting the imbalances in the Corinthian church where they were totally obsessed with the gift of tongues. And uh, he's explaining to them why prophecy is better because it builds up the body of Christ more particularly. And he wants to encourage them to pursue uh, spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And he regulates it. He goes through what orderly worship should look like. And he's explaining all of this. But then you come to the end of the chapter in verse 37. Very interesting thing that Paul says. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or a spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. And if anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. So <laughs> earnestly desire to prophesy and don't forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. So what happens here is that Paul asserts his own authority over the prophets in the Corinthian church. He's saying anyone, even those who are prophets, who deny Paul's apostolic authority and instructions should not be recognized. Now note well, if a New Testament prophet could supposedly speak the actual authoritative words of God, and so could the apostles, what right does Paul have to exert his apostolic authority over the prophets? Instead, his exercise of authority over them is another indication of the inferiority of prophecy to the apostles' words, which is what, why it's under this other line. You know, so again, this this line would be similar to this uh, line here, where above this is special revelation, below this is the guidance um, that comes from special revelation is not equal to it, but should always be in agreement with it. The category of guidance. Um, so. As we transition to New Testament prophecy, we should notice the early signals that prophetic function would undergo a dramatic revolution in the New Covenant. Um, Moses laments the limited availability of prophetic ministry. We talked about that last night. We saw it in Joel, in Peter's words there in Acts. All of these things um, signal the, this dramatic shift in prophetic function. So how has the gift changed as we come to the new covenant. Because again, if you're in 1 Corinthians 14, look at verse 5. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Now our cessationist friends say that prophecy is speaking God's, in the New Testament, is speaking God's actual and authoritative infallible words. If that's the New Testament definition of prophecy, I, I just can't imagine Paul saying I would, that you, I would like you all to speak in tongues, but I just I earnestly desire even more that all of you would speak the authoritative, infallible, divinely inspired, equal to Scripture words, O Corinthians. Is he exhorting them to write Scripture? Is he exhorting them to speak God's divinely inspired, actual authoritative words? That's, that's hard to imagine, um, especially as the end of the chapter, he draws 
his own clear distinction between prophetic function in the Corinthian church and his role as apostle instructing how that should take place. So it's hard to imagine that in the beginning of the chapter, Paul puts him on equal plane. And then at the end of the chapter, he flips it back around. So it doesn't seem to be the case that New Testament prophecy is speaking God's divinely inspired actual authoritative words. Now, as let's, let's look at the next section. And then I will come back and caveat my, a, a shift in my own personal position um, as a result of a, some, so, uh, an art, uh, chapter by Ian Duguid, which is very helpful and helpfully nuanced. But for, for the most part, we'll, we'll move forward here. So New Testament prophecy, what is it? Speaking human words to report something that God spontaneously brings to mind in agreement with and submission to Scripture. Now, the phrase in parentheses is super important. In agreement with, so it's, it falls within the, these two vertical lines that Scripture draws for us, but in submission to. It's not on par with. It's submitted to. It's evaluated by. It flows from truth in Scripture, but it's not equal to truth in Scripture. And again, that if, if it's hard to think of prophecy that way, is it because we've thought of prophecy in the New Testament as the exact same as prophecy in the Old Testament and failed to get the, the signal changes and the road signs saying, hey, it's going to change three miles ahead, that exit, it's going to change. It's, you're about to change course here. The Bible gave it to us, but it's easy, it's easy to miss it. And so we accidentally draw a straight line from Old Testament prophecy to New Testament prophecy. But if we can see the signals coming, then, then we can make a lot more sense of what we find in the New Testament. And that prophecy is in this bottom tier, not on the top shelf with the Bible, but below on the second shelf, um, but nonetheless in agreement with it. And so where do we get that from? Well, we see it in 1 Corinthians all over the place is, is one is one area, but uh, prophecy is say sifted or weighed. You see this in 1 Corinthians 14, 29. Let two or three prophets speak, let the others weigh what is said. Um, do not despise, 1 Thessalonians 5, 20. Do not despise prophecies. Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Um, letter B. What is, it's what is said, not the one saying it. That also signifies a change from Old Testament prophetic function to New Testament prophetic function. We should weigh and test what is said because we prophesy in part, 1 Corinthians 13, 9 says. In the Old Testament, the people would never test the prophecies and only hold on to the good parts like we're commanded to do in 1 Thessalonians, um, it's, which is an important change in the nature of prophetic ministry. Remember what would happen if in the Old Testament a prophet prophesied something wrong? It would be stoned. So Paul is given instructions here. Hey, test and weigh what it says. If it's good, hang on to it. If it's not, uh, just let it go. Uh, Paul's not concerned that certain prophecies would be lost forever. If one person speaking, a revelation comes to somebody, the other person can stop. You don't have to give it. In other words, we're, what we're not seeing is, oh, Corinthian prophets, because you are speaking divinely inspired, infallible, authoritative words of God, if anything in your speech is wrong, you need to be taken out to the parking lot and stoned. And that. Because in the New Testament, prophecy takes on an entirely different dimension. It's a it's new nature given to prophecy in that it's, a, it's functioning on this bottom tier in agreement with Scripture, but subordinate to it. So letter C, prophecy is evaluated against Scripture because Scripture is the only thing that is the very words of God. 
elsewhere, public speech is tested this way as well, similar to, yeah, you know, we could say, you know, else we can put in here? Preaching. Sure. Now, some of the older Reformed guys um, equated New Testament prophecy with preaching, and people still uh, differ on that. So some of the, one of the Puritans had a book, The Art of Prophesying, and that is uh, a book on preaching. <laughs> so, yeah, they would equate New Testament prophecy with preaching. I mean, I don't have a huge problem with that. I think preaching should include prophecy, but prophecy, uh, I, again, I, 1 Corinthians 14, 5, I don't think Paul is saying, I wish that you all speak in tongues, but even more that you would preach, that every one of you would engage in the task of preaching. The first Timothy, second Timothy, Titus, preaching, uh, the, the, the primary task of the pastor. I don't think he's calling them, everybody, to be that. He's calling them to something different, namely to speak human words, to report something that God spontaneously brings to mind. Letter D, some prophecies could be lost forever, and that's okay. That would not be true of God's actual and authoritative words. So here's where I would caveat that. Um, so in this book, uh, Redeeming the Life of the Mind, Essays in Honor of Vern Poitras, who is a cessationist, Ian Duguid has a chapter in here on um, cessationism and continuationism and in what sense does prophecy continue. And one thing that he points out, actually, is that um, while all of this is true, there are Old Testament, there are some Old Testament prophetic functions that were never written down. You, you read of these groups of prophets that the, the Spirit came upon them and they all began to prophesy. And we don't know what they said um, and how people responded. And it was, it was, there was almost a, a below this line version of Old Testament prophecy. Duguid makes the argument that and he's a covenant theologian, so he's going to see a lot of continuity between the covenants. Um, and so he, he's saying that that actually gave way to this other version of New Testament prophecy. So prophecy in the New Testament is equivalent to this, what he calls lowercase p prophecy in the Old Testament. So he would call this capital P prophecy, this lowercase p prophecy, capital P prophecy. Uh, I'm sorry, lowercase p prophecy gave way to lowercase p prophecy in the New Testament, which is the view we're presenting here. But he has this other nuance that I appreciated, um, that also uh, there is actually capital P uh, prophets in the New Testament, though they are the vast minority. Um, and, and that's how he goes to explain Ephesians 3.20, which if you have questions about that, we can get to that if we have time. So all of that to say... Um, in each quadrant, there are, there are some exceptions. What we're trying to discern is what is the overall thrust of the majority of text in the New Testament as it pertains to New Testament prophecy. And what we see is that it's very much um, different than writing scripture in agreement with, but always submitted to, subordinate to scripture. Um, letter E. This is an important point as well. Women could prophesy in the New Testament churches. We have examples of that in Acts 21.9. Since you're already in 1 Corinthians, just jump back to chapter 11, verse 5, where Paul is addressing head coverings and authority and submission. And it's a side note. It's not his main point here. But as a side note, he says, every man who prays prophes I mean, verse 5, every wife or woman, gune is the word, who prays or prophesies 
with her head covered, uncovered, dishonors her head since it's the same as if her head were shaven. And he goes on and, and is making this analogy about head coverings and authority and submission, which is a whole different subject. But the point is that Paul references, as though it were the norm, women prophesying in the church. And he, he doesn't say, by the way, that needs to stop because prophecy is authoritative. And didn't you read First Timothy where it says, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. So Paul's not contradicting himself. How can he say, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man in 1 Timothy, and then in 1 Corinthians 11, he has no problem with women praying or prophesying in, a, in the public gathering as long as it's done in a certain way, marked by order and authority and submission that's reflected in the way it comes out and all of that. So the fact that women could prophesy in New Testament churches also signals the fact that prophecy in the New Testament takes on an entirely new dimension when compared to prophecy in the Old Testament. Letter F, Paul tells the Corinthians that none of them could give forth the very words of God as the apostles could. And that's coming from 1 Corinthians 14.36. So that is a brief flyover of that. Um, before we transition to the next next part, any questions on that? Anything you want to ask about? That? Give me a good definition of prophecy. In the Old Testament or New Testament? Why would that one change definitions? Yeah, and that that's a good question. So the. The reason it would is the New Testament and the Old Testament tells us it did. So like Joel is saying the day is coming where prophecy is going to completely change. Young men, old men, female servants, male servants, men and women, everybody's getting the spirit. Everybody's capable of prophesying potential. Um, so he signals the change. Then when Pentecost happens, Peter uses that passage to say that that is now. What was talked about is happening right now. The, the change has arrived. You have a prophecy that this is going to come to pass, and then in the New Testament, there's a confirmation of that prophecy. It's not a new prophecy. Right. Prophecy definition being foretelling a future. Yeah, well, um, yep, so let me get get to that. So the content... It may be predictive, but it's not always predictive. So here in 1 Corinthians, as he's addressing prophecy in chapter 14, um, he talks about in verse 25, <clears throat> the secrets of, of his heart are disclosed. So that is not necessarily future. In verse uh, 3, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, consolation. That's not necessarily future. So it can be future. Um, Agabus's prophecy in Acts is future, uh, but it's not necessarily future. I guess the, the, the common denominator between Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy would be, in the broadest sense, um, a revelation from God. <clears throat> in the Old Testament, that revelation was binding and authoritative on all people and resulted in the writing of Scripture. In the New Testament, that type of prophecy in the, in the church, <clears throat> didn't carry that sort of binding authoritative weight. Um, it was a revelation from God, but it was subordinate to Scripture 
and in agreement with scripture, not equal to it. So in that sense, the definition underwent its own change. Joel signaled that it would undergo its change. Peter affirmed that Joel's prop- that Pentecost was the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. So together, all of that is saying, yeah, the definition changed when we moved into the new covenant. So there, there's some carryover, but the nature of the new covenant is that the spirit of God's poured out on all. Is The spirit of God doesn't just come upon special individuals called and equipped to lead God's people in the Old Testament, um, but that all God's people uh, have the spirit under the new covenant. Does that answer that? Yeah. Yeah, great question. Um, yeah, what else? And we will get into more. So what does this look like and practical? That's where we're going to spend the rest of the time. Yeah. That follows what? There's a part two to that? Okay, yeah. I mean, tell me if I'm understanding the question right um, by by this. Is that apostleship, you know, we can talk about functional, the functional gift of apostleship today. We have to be really careful about that because apostles was was such a unique function. Um, So that's kind of another subject. But yes, uh, uh, apostleship was an office in the New Testament. Um, It was a special commissioning by God for the purpose of revealing God's truth in the pages of Scripture. What we have in the New Testament is the the record of apostolic doctrine and teaching preserved for us in Scripture. We have the apostles' words, which are God's words, breathed out by God and useful. All right. But we don't really see a prophet as an office in the church. Um, so the, the, uh, if in fact, the, the, there's so much instruction in terms of church leadership that's given to pastors, um, to preach the word and to lead God's people and to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight and all of that. Um, there's hardly any instruction, leadership instructions about prophets. I mean, if, if prophets were, if, if, prophet was an office that spoke forth the actual authoritative binding words of God, you would think that the New Testament would address, how do you do that? And it doesn't. It does address, how do you do pastoring? <laughs> it does address that. And, and there you're commanded to install pastors, elders, overseers. So prophet is not an, an authoritative office in the church like apostleship was and like pastoring is eldering is um so it kind of brings up the question of our gifts of resident in people so if we're saying prophecy is a gift is it a resident gift and does it reside permanently in the individual or is it something that occasionally takes place when god sees fit and it seems to me that it's more the latter than the former so the, 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 from the office and apostle being, he 
Yeah. But then somebody in prophecy, you you see that distinction in the words that are coming out need to be tested by the apostle. And when I see it in first uh, Corinthians fourteen uh, uh, thirty seven, it seems like this the testing is tied to the person rather than the words coming out. And I want to know if there's a proof that that shows that we test the actual words coming out of the prophets, New Testament prophets now, rather than testing the person. Yeah, well, the, the, the verse there in 30 um, that you just recognized in verse 37, I mean, Paul is bringing a correction to an imbalance. As if anyone thinks he's a prophet. In other words, if you think this is your special gift, you know, number one, you've strayed from 1 Corinthians 13 and that the whole point of this is love and edification, upbuilding and encouragement. It's not a position of status and rank and office. And, and so when he's saying that, I, I think he's speaking to the Corinthian misunderstanding of prophet. Um, but that's, that's the only, it would not be a place, in my opinion, to, to argue that uh, prophet is an office per se. Um, so to the second part of your question, where are the, the prophet's words being judged more than the person would be verse 29, where it says, let the others weigh what is said. So it doesn't say, um, let the others determine if the person saying it is a true or false prophet. Um, and if they are false, then they should be stoned. So, you know, it's not associated with uh, the person themselves as if it were an office. Um, what is commanded to be tested and weighed is the message itself? Um, is that does that make sense? In twenty nine, yeah. Let two or three prophets speak. Let the others weigh what is said. How does yours read? Yep. Yep. Which we can. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So th it's it's definitely better to um, to understand that as uh, to evaluate what is said because the modifier of, of what is said is let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment, what? On, on the person or on the speech? And from the Greek here, it looks like it's, it's speech. So I think ESV has, has it right that it's, uh, you're not called to judge the prophet themselves. Um, and then the first Thessalonian passage, I think, comes to bear as well, um, where it says, test everything, uh, where is it, let's hold fast to what is true, yeah, I had it in the notes there, but let's actually turn to it, good, don't quench the spirit, and do not despise prophecies, I don't know what people do with that verse. Do not, do not despise prophecy. But test everything, hold fast to what is good. 
So test everything, meaning as prophecies come, test it and hold fast what's good and abstain from every form of evil. Um, so, yeah, good question. I think so. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cuz yeah, cuz on the on the first um Thessalonians passage she already turned away from Okay, the first Thessalonians passage don't don't quench the spirit. It doesn't say do not despise prophets, but test all of them, all of those people. It says, do not despise prophecies. It's the content and hold fast to that content, which is good. In other words, which, which falls under, you know, within the rails of, of biblical truth, the guidelines of biblical truth. Um, now, I'll want to just mention one more thing and then we'll, we'll pause. Um, oh, man, just there's so much I would love to say here. Yeah. So when you say judge a person, are you speaking of bad character or office? So I'm just like my mind is trying to put down a little between apostles and the one that's seeking Christ. I'm trying to see if the scripture is that distinction. Okay. Not yeah. So this may be another place that this is is Good question. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so we'll, we'll get into that next. Um, and, and preaching certainly can contain prophecy, but what, what is the distinction, you know? So, uh, yeah. And, and like Pastor Billy said, so remember apostles are, were, were given a divinely commissioned, very specific task of the giving of scripture. So if we're going to believe in a closed canon, we necessarily have to believe in the, the ceasing of the apostolic office in the sense of giving of scripture, that those two go hand in hand. God has finished giving scripture. 
there's no more need for apostles who can give scripture. So in that sense, that the office has ceased. Now, that's not the only thing apostles did, which is where he was getting at with lower lowercase a apostle. Apostles also pioneered new works. They went into new areas and planted churches. They circled back around and strengthened churches and cared for churches. And there were these other functional things that were not equal to writing scripture, but were functional apostolic ministry. And we can say with great caution, yes, that exists, but we're hesitant to say those are apostles because it's just fraught with lots of misunderstanding. Yeah. So there are times when my I would say the phrase my pastor, my wife is pastor. Yeah. But in no way, shape, or form am I saying she is a pastor yeah. and has the office Great analogy. Pastor, but she she took the, the function. What she did took the function of that and applied it in words that we should know. Yeah. And uh, but I didn't because of the context, it wasn't like skewed right. to where I believe, oh now she's right. Very yeah, great analogy. Yeah, Christian. Yeah, I just want to ask a question. Like okay. You're talking about gifts versus office, and what you're saying is making uh, very clear. It makes a lot of sense that as far as the office goes, like so, you're looking at First Corinthians 12, um, 28, and you know, right next to God giving the church first apostles, it says second prophet. So, you know. How do you reconcile that with saying you know, that prophecy is just a gift and it's not really a formal office? Because here it's right next to apostleship. And to me, I would take that to mean it's, it is somewhat of an office that's given to the church. Yeah. So, and both that verse and Ephesians 2.20, there's a lot of different strong views on how that can be taken. So in, in more recent years, this is where my personal view has shifted a little bit, is that... Um, in light of what Do Good is saying, Ian Do Good, I I think that that um, can refer to uh, people like Agabus, who who was considered a prophet in the New Testament, and who spoke forth words, and they immediately obeyed it and didn't even question it. <laughs> um, Zechariah uh, was a pro a prophet in the Old Testament sense, living in New Testament times. Um, so I do think that. There, there was a limited scope of prophetic office still functioning in the time of the New Testament because of the overlap of covenants. You're, you're still in the old covenant. The new covenant has dawned, and there's this overlap. So I think there's, in a sense, New Testament prophets there. But one of the ways it can be taken is um, first apostles, meaning they've given the fullness of God's revelation of everything redemptive history was pointing to. Second, prophets as a euphemism for Old Testament writings. In the same way that Jesus would say, the law and the prophets have said, you know, reference to the Old Testament. So prophet there could be a reference to Old Testament. We might read it as he gave first New Testament apostles because they completed the full course of God's revelation and, and Old Testament prophets. And then teachers who would extend the truth of Old Testament, New Testament into people's lives. And, um, so in that in that sense, um, where there's a little bit here, uh, Grudem looks at Ephesians two twenty, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and he says apostles who are also prophets. Um, but many people don't agree with that position uh, 
for good reason, which we can get into if y'all want, but it's kind of technical. Um, yeah, so in the past, I would have always said that apostles and prophets are euphemisms for New Testament writings, Old Testament writings. And I think that's still a strong possibility, but I'm seeing the possibility of Duguid's point that there was some New Testament prophetic office that was still around as an overlap from Old Covenant. And that um, the uniqueness of that office would be would be seen as a gift to the church because that person was standing on both banks of the river. <laughs> and, and it could be said that uniquely, the, the foundation, that is the foundation of what the church is built upon. Um, so... Kind of, so that's a that's a, a a heavily caveated answer, but yeah, yeah, Delane. Yeah, I would I would say no because um, you know you have drawn it like this. Here's yet another timeline. Um, so the the old covenant age comes, you know, this is, this is the coming of Jesus. So we could, we could draw a cross here. This is Jesus. Um, but then the, uh, the Holy Spirit comes down, Holy Spirit. The new covenant age has dawned and it proceeds on this way. Uh, but what about the people, like the disciples? I mean, they were born before Pentecost ever happened, before the new age ever happened. And they lived into the new age, and then they died. So there is an overlap of the ages marked by this little, this little period here. Okay? And this is the, the old age, the old covenant. This is the new covenant. And you can see where there's overlap there. And so the Pentecost event really... Uh, marks the transition of the new covenant, but the old covenant is still hanging around. So that's how we can make sense of um, the Samaritans <clears throat> not having to receive the Holy Spirit, but having already believed in Jesus. And how do we, you know, which is a whole other issue. Does that make sense? So on that term, I would say, no, there's not, there's not the continuation of New Testament capital P prophecy because that's above the line and anything above the line has been closed because we live in a closed canon. So to say that there's, there's New Testament capital P prophecy speaking forth divinely inspired, infallible, authoritative words of God, to believe that that exists today would be to believe that scripture or words equal to scripture are still being given. And um, we would say there are words being given that are in agreement with scripture, but subordinate to, submitted to scripture, never equal to it. Make sense? Is that helpful? Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So um, going back to Patty's question, it, it can be future and predictive. And um, but whatever whatever is prophesied would still not have would not be able to contradict scripture or it wouldn't be from the Lord. So if we prophesy that 
one day, brother, God's going to call you to leave your wife. You know, it's future, but that's not in agreement with Scripture, obviously. So um, it, it can be future, but it would need to be in agreement with Scripture as the litmus test for is this from the Lord or is it not? Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Can I make one more point and take a break, or should we just take a break now and then come back and make it? Y'all good? Okay. The Tom Schreiner, right? <laughs> Very interesting. So he is a, uh, he begins the book by saying, I want to write a small book on spiritual gifts because I support a position called cessationism. And so he goes on and supports cessationism. And he spends two chapters explaining that New Testament prophecy, prophecy in the New Testament is speaking divinely inspired, infallible words of God. Every single time. That's what New Testament prophecy is. And by that account, he says, New Testament prophecy has ceased. So, okay, classic cessationist position. Doesn't interact with 1 Corinthians 14 and, and things like this. I mean, it leaves a lot. You know, we just explained, what do, what do you do with all of this? Again, is Paul exhorting the Corinthian church to speak forth divinely inspired binding authoritative words of God equal to scripture when they gather every Sunday. Um, but, you know, all of that aside, then his next chapter, he goes into great detail saying, uh, nonetheless, I believe that God can speak spontaneously to people's hearts and reveal things to someone about another person and, and then have them speak forth that thing in such a way that builds them up and edifies them and encourages them and leaving them aware that there is a sense that God just spoke to me and God just met me. I, I believe he's going through the whole chapter saying, essentially, I believe that God can spontaneously reveal things to people that are spoken in human words for the upbuilding, edification, and encouragement of others. I mean, he, he may as well say, I believe God can give human words to report something that God spontaneously brings to mind to other people. And I'm going, that's Grudem's definition of prophecy, Dr. Schreider. And uh, he says, I just think they should be called impressions, not prophecy. So I'm like, you're a continuationist. <laughs> um, yeah, then, uh, yeah. And then he goes on in, in a whole chapter, uh, explains that he believes tongues um, are still available to the church today. He just believes that there's, there are human languages and excludes uh, angelic languages. So it's a nuance um, and that if given publicly, they should be interpreted and that uh, God can operate and heal people when we pray for them and through the gift of healing. And <laughs> and I'm, I'm finishing the book and I'm like, man, you don't sound like a cessationist, you know, but, um, but from his perspective, he, he is. So it's it's very interesting. Um, so we'll get into more what this is in the next session and then some of the other gifts. Um, but my point in bringing up Shriner is I, I do think it's more than just semantics. I mean, if the Bible calls it this, then we should not be afraid to call it this as well. We have to heavily explain it because of contemporary abuses of this thing, of the gift. And I think that's really where a lot of cessationists are honestly coming from. And that's fair, that the gifts have been abused. And, uh, and as a result, we, they want to shy away from um, those abuses and not call it that, even though the Bible calls it that. But I would just say, 
where does that logic function really in any other area of Christian life? Um, teach, preaching is done poorly. Do we therefore say well, we shouldn't do preaching? People evangelize poorly. Do we not do evangelism? People do social justice unbiblically. Should we say that ah, social justice isn't for today? I mean, um, that logic doesn't really flow. So as continuationists, we definitely want to acknowledge that there have been charismatic abuses all over the place. Um, and, you know, like Schreiner would say, what, what goes under the banner of New Testament prophecy in the church today is not what happened in the New Testament. And, uh, and then he goes on to explain what he means by that is you have people standing up in churches saying, thus saith the Lord, and speaking words that are on par with Scripture. And he's like, that just doesn't happen today. And I'm going, yeah, yeah, totally. Agree. That's not biblical. We totally agree with you. Prophecy is not speaking divinely authoritative, thus saith the Lord's. Um, but the fact that that is misunderstood and abused shouldn't cause us to entirely uh, back away from it. Um, J.I. Packer has this thing in keeping in step with the spirit. I promise you I'm going to stop. I don't know where my notes from last night went. Um, where, where he says if when you're always, you, you can always be backing away from something because you know it's wrong and you can see it. And the, the further you get from it, you see even more clearly that it's wrong. And you may be, uh, may be able to understand that it's wrong, but it, if all you're ever doing is backing away, you're eventually going to trip over something. And as we back away from abuses, we also want to turn and embrace what God has for us in Scripture. What has he shown us? Pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So the next session, we will look at um, just get real practical with gift prophecy. What does that look like? What's an example of that? What informs the content of that? How does that play out in our church? What are we doing to... Um, grow and just just be more faithful and how should we think about that so let's take a few minutes break and uh feel free to thumb through the books and get some food and whatnot and i'll call us back in a few minutes <laughs>